Welcome to the Profitable Farmer Podcast, where it's all about increasing the profitability of your farm by working smarter, not harder. G'day and welcome once again to Profitable Farmer. I hope this season continues to unfold well for you, wherever you're listening in from. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was lucky enough to interview Maggie Dent, um, the Australian Queen of Parenting. Um, if Maggie Beer is the Queen of Australian Cooking, today I get and I'm delighted to interview Lynn Sykes, who for mine is the Australian Queen of all things family alignment, communication and succession. I first met Lynn just under 20 years ago when I was farm consulting in the Riverina and down in northern Victoria and did some training on communication and facilitation with Lynn that I still call on today. Um, Lynn has over three decades of experience supporting Australian families through succession and has a career paving the way to help so many farming families come together and be more aligned in how they move forward through generations. And so I'm delighted, as I say, to welcome Lynn to Profitable Farmer and to um, talk with her on this important conversation of succession. So welcome, Lynn. Thanks very much. What a grand introduction that was. <laughs> Most of it's true. <laughs> I never, I never saw myself as a queen. Well, you know, looking back on a career like you've had, Lynn, I think it's fair. I'd, I'd rather you... be a queen like Elizabeth than the one out of the deserts movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lynn, how do you reflect on your time supporting farming families across Australia? I think first let me say one of the um, great privileges is that um, I've been around long enough to have the opportunity to reflect and that someone's interested in the reflections. I think that's one of often one of the sad things of getting older and um, changing the way that you live is that you you do develop um, a few skills and some a bit of wisdom along the way and frequently particularly in my own family, I'd have to say no one's very interested in hearing about it. So it's a great opportunity to have a chance to talk about it. Thank you. Well, I hope, I hope we do that reflection justice. I, yeah. I personally do sincerely acknowledge the training that I got to do with you all those years ago. The, the succession that you facilitated for our family um, had lasting implication and continues to. So, yeah, no, I'm delighted to have some time with you and hopefully do your career some justice. Yeah, it's always, I mean, I think you might remember when we spoke on the phone last week when you reminded me that I'd done a family meeting for your family, my standard question is, was it helpful? Because you can, I can always sigh a bit of relief when people say, yes, it has been helpful because I'd say at least 50% of the time people would say, no, it was a freaking disaster. So, um it's it's nice to to be around long enough to hear that some of the things that you've done with the best of your ability have turned out well for people as you had hoped they would. Yeah, I think it's fair to say in succession that you as the facilitator can't control the outcome. That's up to the family, but certainly yeah. the way you turn up to families and the way in which you inspire a better dialogue, I think for me it's second to none. Oh, thank you. Um, I mean, it's interesting that uh, you connected Maggie Beer to food because one of the things that I frequently say is that running a succession meeting is like baking a cake. You know, you can follow the recipe, but if your ingredients are dodgy, then the cake ain't going to rise. So, you know, my ability was always to help people get to an agreed endpoint so that they're um, other professionals, as solicitors and accountants, could then tell them how to get, how best to get to that endpoint. Um, but frequently, a lot of water had already gone under the bridge before I had any contact with the family. And a bit like what's um, planned on the Macquarie at the moment, there's a there's a lot of things as the water's going under the bridge that cause long term damage um, that tends to surface. Um, when you put people around a table 
and create an environment that's safe enough for them to say whatever they need to say. So, Lynn, what, what, what was and what is your approach to facilitating a family meeting? How, how would you go about it? I think um, uh, a bit like the training um, that you've mentioned that you did, um, I'm not an academic, so anything that I've learned, I've learned by the very um, sophisticated suck it and see method, um, doing more of what worked and less of what didn't work, really. Um, I came to the work by accident um, with a belief in family, really. I think one of the things that in the early days set me apart from a lot of the other people that were doing succession is that my interest was in family, in sustaining families far more than um, than sustaining businesses. And, you know, to me, uh, a really smooth succession path and, and one that I would deem as, as being successful is when both the family and the business are actually sustainable at the end. Um, but I wouldn't be being honest if I didn't say that for me, the sustainability of the family is more important than the sustainability of the business. Um, and so, again, in the early days, um, it wasn't that hard to, to develop a reputation because there wasn't anyone else on offer. If people were worried, and in those days, you know, 30 years ago, classically it was women that were concerned about their family falling apart, um, they were keen to have me involved. Um, because they wanted their family to survive. And as, the, you know, I can't tell you how many people, when I asked them at the beginning of a meeting what they were hoping for out of the day, how many would say, I want us to be able to have Christmas lunch together, which always amused me because I'm not fond of Christmas at all, really. So I'm thinking, why would you want to do that? But anyway, that, um, that was a really important thing for many families. So... I think if you're asking me what was the process that I followed, it it is a bit of a recipe, um, but there are a whole lot of things dependent on whether the recipe will be successful or not. So the first thing that I do is to get some family history. So I draw a family tree, uh, partly because it's a pretty harmless thing to do and and people learn stuff about the previous generations that they didn't know, which is often a really helpful thing. Um, I do that, that family tree for a generation above the oldest people in the room. And, and what I'm wanting to know is how things have worked in the past because if succession has been a disaster in the previous generation, it's, it's likely that it will be headed the same way. Um, if it's successful in the last generation, it's also probably likely it'll be headed the same way. So the first thing I would do is to get some history about, about families and including in that the family history of in-laws who've come to the table. And, again, that's been a really interesting thing for me. It's In some farming families, and, again, I'm going back 30 years, the family, it was almost like if, if an in-law came into a farming family, it was like they'd materialised out of nowhere. It was like their, their family and their family values and traditions were almost never acknowledged. So that was a great learning for me in the early days, how important that was for new family members to be recognised on that board in the genogram and have their parents and their siblings there. Um, having done that, I, I then get a history of how people have accumulated assets and and for, for my information, I'm wanting to know are they buyers and sellers, are they accumulators, are they risk takers, are they not risk takers, um, what has caused partnerships to dissolve or families to sell out or sell parcels of land. And having done that, I then start methodically asking everyone at the table what they're hoping for out of the meeting and what concerns they have. And I, the way that I do that is by asking the oldest people, which are generally the people who have control of the assets, I ask them last what they're hoping for out of the meeting and what concerns they have. And, and I do that because 
What I learned, again, by not doing that, was that if you speak to the elderly, uh, to the elderly, to the older generation first, and a lot of people tell me that it's disrespectful not to do that, but I learned if I did that, then whatever they said they wanted, some family members would always be compliant and agree with whatever the older generation. So that did two things. It, it often didn't lead to a productive outcome. But more importantly, from my perspective, it didn't give the older generation an opportunity to hear unhindered what the next generation was hoping for. And what people told me is that they heard things often for the first time. You know, I've never heard them say that that's what they wanted or that's what their concerns were. So you do a round, that takes quite a long time when you give everyone an opportunity in a relatively safe environment to say what they're hoping for and what concerns they have because what people tell you is what they're hoping for out of the world and life and what their concerns are about the same. So it can take quite a long time. Um, by the time I get round to everyone, then I do a quick whip. Oh, hello, this is the... Um, modern technology of the watch that rings, um, sorry. Um, I do a quick whip around again so that the people who spoke first get another crack at saying what they were concerned about or hopeful about because they may well have been a little cautious in the beginning. But what you find is the, more, the further you go around, the more people, the more honest people are. And so those people who spoke first want to have another go because really there's a few things that they could have said and didn't. Having done that, um, it's often leading towards the middle, it was leading towards the middle of the day, given that I don't do this work anymore. Um, what I would do was generally get whoever I was working with, who was good with numbers, to put up the assets and liabilities that we were actually dealing with, um, clarify the net position, and then I would say to the people who owned those assets, sorry to tell you this, but yesterday you were hit by a bus and you're no longer here. And then I would turn to their children and say, so this is what we're dealing with. What do you want to do? Having already put, if there were three children, the, their symbols across the board and the numbers underneath as to what they were to receive if there had been a sudden and unexpected death of both of their parents. So really what happened for the rest of the day was dependent on what those numbers looked like. If there was huge inequity, then you could be pretty sure that there was going to be some very uncomfortable conversations, um, often not in the way that people would expect, I often hear people say, oh, well, you know, it's all fine until there's money involved. That's actually not been my experience. Usually the people that present as though it's all about the money, it's actually about something completely different to that, um, perhaps some something that's been a pattern in the family. or. Um, and so I then ask one of the questions that nobody actually wants to ask anyone in their family if your parents had died yesterday and or your parents-in-law and this was the situation we were dealing with, would you contest this document? And surprisingly, if, if, if people are going to, they actually say, I could not accept this outcome because, and what they would generally say is that it is unfair to my children. Um, they say because this what this document represents if it's if there's a gross inequity is that my parents care more about my siblings children than they do about my children now some say oh that's just to soften the blow I, I'm, I'm one thing I have learned in doing this work is don't ever make any judgments because the chances of you being right are fairly remote um I think people do care about their children and they want them to be treated equitably, even if they're not themselves. So if there was something that was likely to cause um, a will contestation, then as a general rule, the rest of the day was spent trying to work out how that can be avoided because that's the last thing 
people want. Not that you'd always think that when you look at the way people whose assets are going to be transferred um, by will if there's if there's a tragedy in the short term. Um, if you look at the will, sometimes you'd think, my God, how could they possibly have thought this was going to be good for their family? But, yeah, people's motives are often unclear to themselves, let alone to anyone else. So if there, if there isn't an equity um, and a gross inequity and someone's been working in the business and, in fact, the assets were going to be distributed equally, then that's an equally <laughs> challenging situation for the person who's been there. Um, and, again, that raises some very uncomfortable conversations which, and so lots of uncomfortable questions, which really was my role to ask the questions that everyone wanted the answers to, but no one wanted to ask the questions. Um, so basically, the, I always say that it's not about the numbers, but numbers bring clarity. And, and when people are clear about what would happen if there was a tragedy and they don't like the look of it, then they're pretty keen to work out how that can be avoided. I think, um, you know, there's a few... Um, there's a few things that I would call highlights in my, was lots of things actually, but one of the things that always comes to mind is that I was speaking at a, a I think to do with sheep somewhere in Victoria and some group that raise sheep like no one else does in the world. Um, and there was a lot of people at the conference and I was giving a talk on succession and they went to questions and this fellow put up his hand, he stood up and he said, Lynn Sykes uh, facilitated a family meeting for us, you know. You know, my pulse stops and I think, oh, my God, what's he going to say? And he said, um, at the end of the meeting, we had a clear path forward. I thought, <laughs> he said, but what we didn't realise is that eight weeks later, my father died. And he said, the wonderful gift that we were given was to be able to grieve uncontaminated by the family business. And I'm sure I grew about 10 feet taller and the fact that I'm telling you now and it's probably 20 years ago, um, I think that you, you don't have an opportunity very often in your working life to be part of something that is as special as that was. And I'm sure I owe him some gratitude for work for the next couple of years. In fact, I learned a lot more about sheep in the following few years than probably I was ever really keen to know. So um, That's a, yeah. a very real outline of the importance of the impact that doing succession well can have on families, right? I think that what I learned from that is that the most, and, and the thing that I have said at every, I've done that at every family meeting, for probably 20 years, and the thing that I've said every time I've been asked to speak about something is that when you go away from here today, if you were to do one thing, then have a look at what would happen if there was a tragedy in your family because the last thing people need is to be dealing with a messy family-slash-business situation when they're also trying to deal with a family tragedy. I think that's the question for our listeners is exactly that, that if something happened, a major family incident occurred tomorrow on your farm or for your family, have you got things in order such that the family could grieve or recover strongly and well? And I think, and it's a wonderful question to put out there. Thank you. My, my, my question Lynn, that links to this is what keeps the older generation from getting on with some of these, let's call them tougher conversations, because often perhaps we do see the younger generation sitting, waiting, and the older generation maybe not initiating um, having these sorts of conversations. What is it that you think keeps the older generation from being proactive around this? I mean, I think that um, I do think 
I'm not sure that we're doing it any better, but I do think that the landscape is changing. Um, what I would say, reflecting on my own experience in the business, is that what stops people are basically two things. One is fear. Um, and I think that fear is well justified. They are, as a general rule, unskilled in having crucial conversations. Remind me to come back and to clarify what a crucial conversation is because I think it's important. Um, so one is fear. The other is that my observation of most people who are in agriculture is that they are problem solvers. And so when they look at the, the in inverted commas, problem of succession, they don't immediately have a clear solution. And when they don't have a clear solution, what they do is nothing. Yep. Now, the, I don't do family meetings anymore because I think I'm past it and I, I got tired of that look of what would this old girl know when I walked into a room. Um, but one of the things that I do still do is speak to women who have been married to those men, this sounds a bit gender biased and it probably is, who have been married to those men who didn't know what to do so they did nothing, they've died and they've left the problem to their wife to sort. And those women are unhappy, rightly so. Mm -hmm. They've been pushing to have something happen often in succession for many years he drops off the twig and he leaves her holding this bag of crap is how they describe it. The thing that I think is really clever about that process that you just described is that it it has the family problem solving together for the day. Yeah. Um, and it takes the pressure off, let's say, and again, being maybe a bit gender biased, you know, the patriarch or the matriarch having to crack this nut by themselves and turn yes. up with all the answers yeah. It actually allows the older generation to sit back and listen and then for the family to problem solve together. And, you know, I think that's good for everyone in the family, including mm -hmm. the older generation and the in-laws and outlaws, that they've all got an opinion and a voice and a seat at the table and that together they can, with your support, problem solve this challenging situation together I think it's really clever I think that um yeah well if it was clever it was an accident <laughs> I can assure you um but I mean one of the things I have adult children now and you know my eldest grandchild is 12 so I'm a fair way along the track and you know as we were saying earlier sometimes I hear my children talking about things that they're managing in their careers and I think Bloody hell, they're so smart. Like, I never realised they were as clever as they are. And and it's not challenging to me because it's not threatening. I'm not comparing their cleverness with mine. So there's no, there's no power struggle there. And, you know, I was having a conversation with one of my children who was thinking about, you know, a career situation that he was in and, and his partner said, um, look, if you're unhappy, you know, just get out. And he said, oh, it's a really bad time for the organisation for me to do that. And she said, oh, that's ridiculous. And I, I said to him, to them, well, if you want to stay working in this town, you need to behave in a way that is not going to discredit you in the future because it's a smallish industry. and." You know, your credibility will be affected if you do one thing or the other. And a couple of weeks later, she was at, she's a very generous young woman, and she said, um, Tim asked me about X, Y, Z the other day, and I told him what I thought. But then I said to him, you probably should talk to your mother because she's got a bit broader view than I have. And I thought, you know, what a gift. It's a bit like the bloke at the conference. You know, when you're in a competitive environment with your children, as you often are in a family business, you, you rarely get those gems coming back to you because everyone's trying to prove 
that their way is the right way and their individual self-esteems are so much based on what they do rather than who they are. Mm. Yeah. And I think for me, often perhaps too, why that older generation don't lean into this necessarily early um, all of the time might also be around identity, you know, yeah. if, you know they're facing retirement and they're facing moving on from the farm by yep. turning up to these conversations. And, and maybe this is what you're alluding to with that comment on fear. It's it's fear of loss of identity or something. Would you would you mm. comment there? I think that um, I've always said that there, I used to always say there are three things that will affect our family functions in succession and then I learnt there was a fourth one. Um, now I probably think there's one overall one but what I used to say was that the first thing that will influence a family coming to the table is their own family history. And you also need to remember that if you've got in-laws, you've got a lot of family histories coming to the table, merging. You know, it's a bit like all the tributaries, you know, running into a river and they've all got their own story. So that's the first thing is the family history. The second thing is the ability of the family to communicate. Most families avoid tricky conversations because they're hard, because they cause conflict, because people generally um, are not highly skilled. So you've got family history, you've got communication. The third thing is self-esteem, which is the thing that's in your own head. It's not about how other people see you. It's how I see myself in the privacy of my own head. And if I see myself as a Hereford breeder in Dubbo and somebody asks me to talk about succession, well, if I'm not that, what will I be? And in the early days, older men particularly used to say to me, they want me to move to town, but everyone I know that's gone to town's dead. You know, why would I be rushing to do that? And, and I think there is a really strong element of truth in that, is that, and, you know, I'll be 70 shortly, I hear my friends saying, you have to have a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Now, if the only reason you've had for 60 years or 50 years or 40 years or even 30 years, the only reason you've had to get out of bed is to, is to run your farm, then it's difficult to replace that. I mean, one of the things I was delighted to hear you say about your organisation is that one of the things you're looking for, and these are my words, not yours, is for your agricultural families to have a better work-life balance. Now, to me, it's clear that that will contribute to the ease of succession. If people have other things in their life that consume their energy and that get them out of bed in the morning, then succession is absolutely going to be an easier process um, but if you've got nothing else in your life whatever that is I mean I know an orthopedic surgeon who's 85 and is still doing insurance work because he hasn't got anything else in his life you know I think you miss a lot if all your eggs are in one basket so we've got family history self-esteem communication and the last thing is the generation that you're part of um, that there's a bit more on all of that in that little GRDC booklet that we put out on one on succession and one on communication a good few years ago now. They're probably, I mean, they're certainly old now, but I'm not sure that anything that they contain has changed too much. But one of the things that I wanted to come back to was that there's a fabulous book on the market written by a group of people and the first name in those groups is someone, Patterson, that's, that's called The Crucial Conversation. And that book defines a crucial conversation in the very beginning and it says a, com a, a crucial conversation has three components. It'll be interesting to see if I can remember them. Um, the first is that the stakes are high. The second is that emotion is involved. And the third is that opinions will differ. Feeling pretty pleased with myself right now that yeah, I remember yeah, the yeah. whole three without the book here in front of me. Um, but that's pretty significant. It, it absolutely makes sense. Stakes are high. 
emotions are real and opinions will be different. different. Yeah. Yeah. That that is what defines a crucial conversation to any other. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I mean, one of the things I think now that I have in-laws, in-laws, my children's partners, I mean, every conversation I have is a crucial one. Because one thing I did learn in agriculture was how not to be a mother-in-law was clearly mapped out for me. And to this point, I've managed to maintain pretty good relationships with all my daughters-in-law and my one ex-daughter-in-law. I said I've gone from having five sons and five daughters-in-law from having five sons and six daughters-in-law now. Um, So um, I, I think... Family conversations are crucial. You know, I, I had a bit of a time chairing some um, water reform committees on the Macquarie. That's another story. Talk about um, too many noses in the trough for a scarce resource. Um, and one of the things I learned about that work that was the same as succession is that people often, what really causes things to blow up is someone makes a careless comment. You know, it's not some necessarily earth-shattering conflict. They just make a careless comment, often just an aside, and it's like throwing a hand grenade into the into the middle of the table. It just implodes and, bang, they're off. And, you know, once they're on the road, it just escalates exponentially in an amazingly short amount of time. So, I mean, one of the things about facilitation is to manage those careless comments, immediately they happen. Or even the careless eye roll or head throwback or, you know, there are a lot of careless things that don't actually involve words that that create misconceptions that people then believe and so they look for evidence to support. And that probably speaks to the place of a facilitator because without a facilitator, the rolling of the eyes and the body language can easily get missed when a family tries to navigate this on their own. Or it starts a whole chain reaction that the family are actually not aware even happens. You know, one one of the facilitator's roles is to say, woo, did you see what just happened then? Because... One of the things the facilitator does is they hold up a mirror to the family. And sadly, they don't, families don't always like what they see in that mirror. And so then it's the facilitator's problem, of course. And, you know, it's not a good, facilitating issues around succession, it's a bit like getting old. It ain't for the faint-hearted. <laughs> If you're very vulnerable yourself and have a high need to be liked, uh, this is not the work for you. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Could you have chosen a more difficult vocation really, Lynn? Well, I didn't choose it. That's the thing. It's a bit like having five kids. I didn't choose that either. Um, Both things sort of happened. And I came to the work a little like what used to happen in family businesses was almost by accident. You know, a, a ag consultant came to a communications talk I was giving. He asked me to talk to his farming clients. He then asked me to run a family meeting. It was helpful. The word spread. I mean, one of the things about agriculture is that you can't, really the only way to, to have a product that is sustainable is to have it promoted by word of mouth that, um, you know, I've never found, well, I've never advertised anything really, but um, glitz and glitter tends not to, didn't certainly didn't bring me any work. Mm. But someone's saying, is this tough old Sheila from Dubbo? She might be able to help you. Um, she helped us or she helped the neighbours or, you know, that's that's how the word gets around really. Yeah. Lynn, um In-laws and outlaws, do they have equal say at the table in succession, in your opinion? Well, I think 
the potential is that they will have equal influence. You know, very early in the show, someone in far north Queensland said to me, what you need to understand is happy wife, happy life. And, and I think, you know, there's an element, I'm sure there's a word that rhymes with husband that says the same thing. Um, I always encourage families to have everyone who is likely to have any influence at the table, um, particularly if they have a foot in the legal profession. I wouldn't run a family meeting where there was a lawyer in the family unless they were present um, because it can waste a lot of time. The family can come up with an outcome and and then someone goes home and their partner says, you're not agreeing to that, and so it all falls over. Um, Frequently people would call me and say, we want to have a family meeting but we don't want such and such to come, you know. He or she, their trouble or their gold diggers or they want us out or they want to get out or all sorts of reasons. You know, they'll take over, they'll do this, they'll do that. And I used to say, well, you can't really, in my world, you can't invite one and not all. And if you think they're going to be a pain or cause a problem in the meeting, it'll be my problem, not yours. And I'm pretty confident that I'll be able to handle it. I'm not sure whether that was always genuine, that confidence, but certainly towards the end, I think, you know, people will say to me, oh, I want to speak publicly, but, you know, what if what if they ask a question I can't answer? I say, well, when you've been around the block as long as I have, you've heard most of the questions before. And if you didn't know the answer the first time, you find out by the time you get asked again. Um, and I think that's true of handling different sorts of people. I'm not saying that I handle everyone well, but what I'm saying is I've had a lot of practice at handling all the different types of people that tend to have a bum on the chair at family meetings. Lynn, you mentioned right at the outset that history often repeats. Is that your view and your reflection? That if if you don't take a proactive approach to this, that that history can repeat and often does. Um, I think when I look at my children, who are you know the youngest of whom now is thirty five, it frightens me how much some of them have characteristics of mine, and some have characteristics of their father. Like it, it's seriously scary. So when, you, when you've got that genetic component, it's likely that history will repeat itself. I think it's more likely when history has not been discussed, when the good and the bad of history has not been discussed, I think it's more likely to impact in a negative way. So frequently people will realise things at family meetings that are influencing their behaviour at a subconscious level and they don't even know that. I can't tell you the number of times when I've been doing a genogram and I've asked the older person in the room how old they are, let's say he says 69, when I start getting the history of land accumulation, I'll say, you know, did, how did you come by this land? And they say, oh, well, it, my father transferred it to me. How old were you? And they'll tell me. I'll say, how old was your father? He'll say, oh. It was 69. Like it's like we arrive at this point and something tells us that it's time to do something, but we don't really realise that. You know, or I'll say, oh, how old was your father when he died? And I'll say 70. I'll say, oh, well, you're only 69. You better get cracking. You only got a year to go. You know, they, people often don't connect those things. Um, one of my brothers must have phoned me a half a dozen times the year he turned 65 he, and he'd say, he'd, in every conversation, he'd say, you know, I'm the age dad was when he died. I'm the age dad was when he died. I kept saying, well, if you're worried you're going to die, go to the doctor, find out if there's anything wrong with you. But it was like, once he realised, it haunted him. And at the end of the year, he said, 
I'm so glad I got through that year. <laughs> I can remember saying to my kids when I was about 62, my God, I'm the age mum was when she came to live with us. And the kids say, yeah. I say, but she was so old. And they say, yeah. And your point is? Like, I thought I was brimming with youth, but that's not how they saw me. So that was a bit sobering. How early would how early would you have families start? Do you do you have a rule of thumb here that that when you say people often wait until there's that reminder from the yesteryear or you know they've realised themselves that they're the same age as their father was when he died or whatever? When would you have people start? I think if they haven't started, today's the day because you don't know what might happen tomorrow. Mm. You know. Succession is not always a highly planned process. I can remember doing a family meeting in North Queensland somewhere a lot of years ago, and this young couple, interest rates were not high at the time but not low like they are now, and they had bought, gone absolutely up to their neck in debt. I can remember thinking, I'm glad it's me, not me. And I must have alluded to that, said something. And one of them, the man or the woman, I can't remember who, said, our, our aim in buying these places is, is not to pay them off. We've bought them so that succession will be an option. Their children were under five. And by the time we need them, the capital growth will have been such that the debt level is not going to be an issue. And I can remember thinking, oh, God, well, I hope they're right. I mean, I suspect those children would be in their 20s now and I have no doubt that their parents were exactly right. Yeah. Now, I didn't hear lots of people saying that. No. That's pretty innovative and pretty forward thinking, isn't it? I just hope that their interest rates didn't have a term on them, <laughs> given one that I decided to go interest only and then suddenly the term was up and I had to pay it out. <laughs> I suspect they were more astute business people than I am. Lynn, do you have a, a pin-up story of succession done well that our listeners could use as a positive example? Is there the family? I've got one that comes to mind about a really proactive family that would have annual meetings around it, and it might have taken eight or ten years to unfold. But on-farm and off-farm children, children, in-laws and outlaws all came together for an annual meeting, and the process took place over eight or ten years. And that family, for me, is just a great example of, of it done proactively and well. Do, do you have a thought of a family that is a great example? I think probably because of my... <laughs> there are two things I want to say. One is that I only ever met with families for one day and mostly by the end of the day they never wanted to see me again. They were very happy for me to go. I can remember working with a family actually in the South and there'd been a lot of conflict and I said... Um, you know, let's set up a process of, to what you're going to do next time there's a conflict, you know, we'll, we'll try and sort it out and then if it doesn't happen, we'll get someone in to help us. And I bumped into someone from the family years later and said, you know, how's it all going? And he said, oh, good. He said, you telling us that if we didn't sort our conflict that you were going to come back was the best incentive for us. <laughs> he said we'd get close to not being able to sort it out and they'd say, oh, if she comes, let's let's sort this out because we don't want her back here. So I think I've probably got a lot more examples of, of things that you wouldn't want. And the fact that my skills probably were more suited for people that were in conflict than people who were proactive. I think I think you need a lot less human relations skills if you are proactive. Because you can do things incrementally, you know, it's not a big 
Um, so, you know, I used to say I'm like the the big dose you give your pool at the end of the season. You throw in, you know, seven buckets of chlorine, stand back and hope it helps. Well, that, I was a bit like that, seven buckets of chlorine. Um, I mean, one of the things I learned is that I, I, when we were putting those books together for GRDC, we went through a whole lot of my family meeting minutes and we mixed one family with someone else's property with someone else's outcome so that we were using real examples but there was no one example. And, and I rang a family who had had two children and who I'd done a family meeting for that were proactive and I thought it was the easiest family meeting I'd ever done. And I said, I just wonder, if, you know, would you be happy to speak to a journalist or someone? I can't remember. I said, because yours was the easiest family. They wanted a spectrum. And I said, yours is the e easiest family meeting I've ever done. And this woman said to me on the phone, you have got to be kidding. That is the most excruciating day we have ever, ever been through. And I, and I think that was a, it was a good wake-up for me that just because I was comparing it to a spectrum didn't mean for that family that, that it was easy. Yeah, that it was. I think the, the other interesting story is that I was at a, a women's gathering in Canberra once and there were quite a few people there from South Australia and this woman came up to me and said, oh, how are you? You know, you must remember me, which I didn't, of course. Um, you know, you did our family meeting and it was the best day. You know, it was we had such a good outcome. We were so lucky to have you there, all these very flattering things. My head grew and I said, oh, thanks very much. Nice of you to say. And that night at the dinner um, I was sitting next to a different woman and she said, oh, you know, hello, introduced herself. She said, you would remember me from... My, from a family meeting, and I said my standard, you know, was it helpful? She said it was absolutely dreadful. I've never done anything worse. It was terrible, blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry. All I can ever say is that my aim is always to be helpful. And she said yes. And about 10 minutes later, the woman who I'd been talking to in the morning came up and said, do you want another drink, sis? Same meeting. Same meeting. Sisters. Absolute either end of the spectrum was their experience. Same day, same meeting. Something was very different for each of them. So, you know, young. I was speaking to a young woman who was asking me about just bouncing some ideas off about a family meeting and she said... Um, oh, when I walk into a room, you know, I think I have a skill to, to be able to size people up really quickly. I thought, oh, yeah. <laughs> and I said to her, I guess the really important thing is do you have a process that will let you know if you've sized them up incorrectly? Because actually when you walk into a room, you have no idea really. Absolutely no idea, yes. <laughs> and... Even at the end of the day, two people have had the same experience and it's been completely different. So, Then you talked about ingredients um, and that succession is a bit like the baking of a cake. What are a hatful of those ingredients that make it good? I'm tipping one's respect perhaps between... People. Well, it's interesting because I've been asked because of my age and my retirement factor, I've been asked to give a few talks on reflecting on a career in succession. What are the key elements? And what I came to, given that I have a, I have a perspective that I'm keen about, which is the family, the, the only element that I think is crucial is to have a functional family. I spoke at the um, sustainable grazing. What are they? What's this group? Pro-graze, was it? Uh, sorry? The pro-graze? No, it was, um, I don't know, it's a new name, old 
in my opinion. That's probably not very flattering. And I said, you know, you hear everyone's here to learn about sustainable agriculture. But, in fact, the thing that will ultimately decide whether you're sustainable or not is how functional your family is in terms of the generations. Because it, you can have the best steers, crops, yields, soil in the district, but if, if your family's not functional, it's going to grind to a halt. And yeah. most businesses don't put a lot of time and effort into ensuring that their family is sustainable. Great comment, Len. And, and just to those listening, you know, what is it that you do actively each quarter or each year to make sure that as a family each week, each Sunday, each month, whatever it is, to, to make sure that your family is a priority and um, is getting the time and attention it deserves relative perhaps to your paddocks, sheep, crops, etc. Mm. Yeah, I'd no. be thinking each day. Yeah. Yeah. Each yeah. meal, yeah. each whatever it, whatever it is. And there are a whole lot of things and respect is obviously one of them that contribute to families being sustainable. Thank you. Any other thoughts there, Lynn? Um, I think there's a great training opportunity um, available for helping people communicate more effectively mm. and make their families more sustainable. Um, I think if you if you look at the time, the effort, the funding that goes into all the commodities you know, the thing that will trip it up remains family breakdown, whether it be divorce, succession, you know, disputes between siblings. There's no quicker way, there's certainly no quicker way to burn up money in the court system. And, and there's nothing that, that we all get more benefit from than being in a family that's sustainable or even around one. Would you, would you comment on good business governance? If a family farm has a strong set of core values, a business plan, um, regular meetings, a good organisational structure, roles defined, um, expectations set, do you think all those things support a better succession outcome or or make succession a slightly smaller elephant to try and eat? Or um, do you think differently? I think they can. All of those things can. I'm not sure they always do. Mm. It's It's not that hard to draw up a document. It's the challenge is often living the document. Yeah, great comment, Lynn. So in rounding this out, Lynn, what would you say to the older generation? Is there a, a comment or a, a general piece of advice you'd, you'd offer the older generation in a farming dynamic? I think from an older woman, um, the thing that I've learnt that is least helpful is that when another generation suggests something that you don't agree with, there are two things that you can do that will guarantee a terrible outcome. The first is to defend your own position and the second is to attack theirs. Great comment. So if you don't have the skills to respond to that sort of challenge in a productive way, then zip it up and don't say anything. 
or get that skill. Yeah, or learn the skill. Pretty yeah. hard to teach, you know, old dogs new tricks, they say, and, yeah. That's a great comment. So what about for the younger generation entering into succession? What would you, what would you say to them? You know, it's interesting. A young facilitator asked me something. Why won't older men listen to me? And so the good thing for me is that I was already 40, I think, when I started doing this work. Um, I said, because you try too hard to prove to them what you know. The great gift that I had was that I didn't know much and I was curious. So I think the older generation have a lot of information which they have gained incrementally over a lot of years and mostly they don't know that they know it unless you try and tell them that they don't. So... My advice to the younger generation was to become a skilled questioner, to be curious rather than being threatened by their inflexibility and their dogmatic approach to things, be interested and and ask questions and don't try and convince them how clever you are because it tends to have the exact opposite effect. Brilliant insight, Lynn. That's mm? a brilliant insight. Thank you. What about to the in-laws and outlaws? How would how, is there is there a comment or a piece of advice you'd have for them entering into? Well, remembering thirty years ago, the gender stuff was pretty different than it is now. Yeah, and. Um, I used to get lots of phone calls from daughters-in-law and I used to say, bring it to a head. They think you're the problem anyway, so you might as well be the problem. You never know. It might help. And I can guarantee if it does help, there'll be no recognition for you, but if it's disastrous, it'll be your fault. It's going to be your fault anyway, so you might as well get on with it. Um, I think, again, Think about your own role models, you know, as an in-law. I had a pretty good role model that I was keen to be different to and I've seen a farm, a lot of farming women make young women's lives pretty miserable and so I, I spent a lot of time thinking about the sort of mother-in-law I wanted to be. Not for one minute am I saying that I've got it right but I've managed to maintain relationships with all my daughters-in-law despite how different they all are. Um, and I do, that's from a purely selfish motive, is that I've got more to lose than they have. You know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to work out they have influence over my sons that I certainly don't have. Um, so I think, you know, tread a, tread a gentle path with... With the, with the parents of the person who you're choosing to be with because you have no idea how vulnerable they might be. Um, yeah, I do think it's always helpful to look at the family from whence you've come and look at the family where you're think of, thinking of going and at least be clear about where they're different. I mean, thank you. Lynn, um, what are you most proud of as you reflect on your time in, in agriculture and with farming families? You've been across most parts of Australia and, and helped many hundreds of families. What are you most proud of? Um, I, I think I'm proud that I can honestly and genuinely say my intention has always been to be helpful. I'm not saying that the impact was always what I hoped, um, but I think my intention was always to be helpful. Um, 
I mean, I've had a really, given that I came to this work via midwifery and relationship counselling, um, I've had a really charmed run, really charmed. Um, I've been horrified about some of the things I've heard said about myself that I think were unfair. But also I've had the opportunity to be chuffed about some of the nice things that people have said apropos how you introduced me today. I mean, that that's pretty nice. To, because one of the things that happen as you age is that the amount of affirmation you get disappears radically. Um, when I first was moving into retirement, one of my ch- kids has got a, some childcare centres and when I was feeling a bit down, I'd always toddle myself up to the childcare centre because there was nothing like the little people always love old people. So I'd come away feeling like a million bucks because they'd all tell me how wonderful I was. So I still have teenagers now pass me in the um, in the supermarket and say, hello, Mama. So, um yeah, it's it's if you've if you've had an occupation where people thought you were helpful and they thanked you for that. And one of the things about public speaking is that most people are so terrified about it. Anyone that can stand up in front of the mic, they think is Jesus. So you get a lot of affirmation. And for my personality type, you know, I like that. You know, some people they say, oh, they hate clapping. Oh, I love clapping. Um, you know, it's it's a big slice of your life to disappear. Um, people being a pre- and I can remember even when I went back to work as a midwife after my first baby was born, um, going home and saying I couldn't believe how many people said thank you to me today. You know, it doesn't. There tends to be not a lot of huge thanks going around when you've got little children, as I'm sure you're aware. Lynn, you um, you mentioned in this that the most important thing is keeping that family together and having a strong family unit. You have five boys and six... Daughters-in-law. Daughters-in-law, and I think you said 12 grandkids. Is that right? Mm, Correct. What would be be your sort of tip for how to foster strong families based on your personal experience? Uh, I'm not sure that my children... (laughs) I'm not sure my children would share my views. I'm always reluctant. I certainly don't hold myself up as any great role model for wife, mother, grandmother. Um, but I think the wonderful thing that that I have to give my grandchildren is time. And I think a lot more time than their parents have. Um, I think one of my missions with my grandchildren is to encourage them to spend less time in front of screens. So I work pretty hard at trying to find interesting things for them to do and I certainly don't always succeed. Um, But I just like to do things with them and I like to do things with my children. They're just less keen to do things with me than my grandchildren. Um, They're very keen to do things. I noticed that... um, I got a phone call very quickly when it was announced when New South Wales was coming out of lockdown. Um, I think would have, I think an hour might have passed, but not much longer. Just checking what you're doing next Saturday week night. Just wondered if you'd like to have the children. <laughs> I said, of course I would. Love to have them. <laughs> so, give, um, give the individuals in your family real time. Yeah, I think. Um, And to be, I think one of the things that's helped me in this work is that I had no background in agriculture and and I came from an absolute working class family. Um, I think curiosity. I'm curious about what my children are doing and I'm really interested. And for some of the five, they they enjoy sharing that with me, and for some, they don't. And so for me, it's about learning what are the paths to having a relationship that they want as much as I want. Well, then I can't speak for an industry. Um, I'm nowhere near arrogant enough to think that I can, but... 
I would like just for a moment to acknowledge the impact that you've had on many hundreds of families um, and probably thousands of people that you've spoken to um, at various workshops and training. Um, I think the impact that you've had on those families, you say 50-50, I'm sure that it's different from that. Um, but I think irrespective of the outcome, you've allowed for families to have crucial conversations um, at a level that they might otherwise not have. Um, and even if succession hasn't always worked out, I bet relationships are stronger within individuals within those families for the process. So um, thank you. It's been one I've, I've always enjoyed connecting with you. I'm grateful for the impact you've had on our family. And I, I genuinely mean that the training that you've given me around communication and facilitation was game-changing for me as a young professional. So, um, That's very generous. Thank you. Thank you for your time today. It's just been great to, to dig into this really important topic. And, again, congratulations on an amazing career. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure.